Welcome, one and all, to another episode of Left Turn Canada. Andy Burkowski, Christo Evelis here, talking about everything that's going on in Canada from that leftist perspective. We are, of course, a part of the Harbinger Podcast Network, some incredible leftist uh, podcast there to check out. So, you haven't yet, please do so. Last week, Christo, we kind of ended the show talking about some kind of disappointing poll numbers here for Ontario. It looked like there was uh, big increases for the Liberals, despite basically not really having a, a functioning party here, having a leader um, provincially that, that's very unknown as Doug Ford continues to fuck up. Right now, we have a little bit of a more positive bright spot for the NDP, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the polls in Ontario are bonkers right now, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> Basically, Philippe Fournier, who writes for 338 Canada, he's, we've often cited him, and he has like a, a periodic piece, a column in McLean's talking about polling, basically says that right now uh, everything is crazy. Right now, the polling average for the Liberals and the NDP are basically identical. So the Conservatives have about a 35% level of support, the Liberals 27, the NDP 27. But whereas the Conservative polls have been quite tight, um, the lowest one of the recent high quality polls has been 31. The highest for them has been 37. So pretty, yeah. pretty focused in uh, the liberals range from 19 to 36 percent support and the NDP from 22 to 36 oh, percent wow. support. <laughs> so when a, a, a Angus Reid, a recent poll out has the NDP, uh, the Ontario NDP leading at 36%. And I believe, people can correct me if I'm wrong, that is the only poll we've seen in the entire 2018 to 2022 cycle that has had the NDP in first um, because almost immediately after the election, you started seeing polls even in the fall of 2018 that had the liberals in some cases back in their second place position, right? Mm -hmm. Like it almost instantly um, like strategic, like I guess a, a vote people who have voted liberal, but switched to the NDP this time um, kind of went back to the liberals for polling concerns. Yeah. And so this is uh, not necessarily representative, but what it does show right now is if you look at the mid-range polls, effectively the liberals and the NDP are tied. So there's this narrative, I think, that people have been saying that, oh, the, the, the NDP's back in its traditional third place position, but it's not necessarily the case. And according to at least one, you know, fairly prominent pollster, um, the NDP is leading right now. That poll has the NDP uh, currently sitting in um, the first place position. Angus yeah. Reid, if it's to be believed, um, you know, has the NDP at 36, the Conservatives at 33, the Ontario Liberals at 19, and the Ontario Greens at four. Yeah. Uh, and again, I believe that is the first poll in this entire cycle that has had the NDP uh, up um, at that position. Now, one other poll here, and this is an interesting one, has a true three-way tie in Ontario. This is another new poll. Uh, the Greens at six, the NDP at 27, the Liberals at 28, the PCs at 31. Like a true, like yeah. literal, <laughs> like it's within the margin of error, right? It's a true three-way tie. Because mm -hmm. any one of those three parties, if you look at the margin of error, could be leading. You know what I mean? And that is from Main Street. Um, and so multiple pollsters are showing great volatility in the current, in the yeah. current polling. 
There does seem um, to be right this now. notion of just a swath of Ontarians that are drifting back and forth, if it is to believe, from the NDP and the Liberals, because, you know, maybe traditionally, like you said, they were Liberal voters, but saw that complete decimation in the, the last election. Now they're not sure. So I, I don't, again, it's hard to know what is to be believed here, but we've said it before, this election could be very likely Andrew Horvath's last one to really push the NDP to a position of leadership and, and kind of nothing else. Like, I, I don't think a, a second place win here again would be enough to, to keep her at the reins of the Ontario NDP, especially considering what we've seen from Doug Ford during this pandemic and just kind of like the laughable, almost cartoonish villainy that, that he's been seen here. Because if that if she's not able to do it with this, you know, I, I don't know if uh, she's going to stick around. Likely not, right? No, no, I think Horwath is definitely done. Um, even if she was to, like, improve on seats, maybe you say in a situation where she improves on seats and it's a minority government and it makes it difficult to, 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 to you know, like, from a, yeah. from a practical standpoint, let's say... She has some power. Um, she has the balance of power, at least a little bit. Balance yeah. of power, but even you, you end up in a weird scenario where, you know, the NDP is the second-place party, it's a minority government, uh, but the government is very precarious. Uh, she can't necessarily quit now because who knows when the next election will be. There might be a weird scenario like that. Mm-hmm. But in general, um, she is... Uh, this is her last chance, I yeah. think. And I don't think she necessarily would want to run beyond it. I mean, like, look, you're right. Right now, in general, um, Ford is not well-liked. Uh, a new uh, abacus poll, um, which, again, has a relatively close three-way race in the... Uh, the conservatives a little bit better in this one, but the uh, conservatives in the high 30s, liberals high 20s, NDP mid-20s. Uh, it basically says that while... And this is first past the post... Um, personified. It's just a delicious example of the uh, terribleness of the system. Uh, Ford uh, does well on no issues. They asked them five <laughs> on main no issues, issues here. On nothing. Uh, no, uh, five key issues in Ontario. Um, all of these were ranked in the top. The, people were asked to rank issues by importance and then give a response on the you know is the, are they doing a good job acceptable or poor and the five top issues were uh uh pand- the pandemic uh cost of living health care housing and climate change right so mm-hmm. we and i think we would agree those are all very important issues um and on no issues uh, is for uh, 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 on every issue <laughs> poor and very poor win and in all but one of those Poor and very poor are the majority, not just the plurality. Mm. So, for instance, 50% of people think that he's doing a poor, very poor job in the pandemic. About 47 think he's doing anywhere from good to acceptable. But 67% think he's failing on the cost of living. 54 on healthcare. 65% on housing. And 43% on climate. Uh, but again, that is the biggest single one, and there's a lot more I don't knows on climate. Mm-hmm. I think you know that's less salient right now. I think in a day to day sense, um, and so he's very uh, he's not doing he's not seen as doing a good job. And while in most of the polls, the other leaders aren't very popular. In fact, there was one recent Ontario poll that had the uh, all three leaders devastatingly unpopular. Ford minus thirty eight. Uh, uh, 
uh, minus 38, Del Duca, like, minus 25, and even Horwath minus, like, or Horwath minus 25, Del Duca minus 33, Ford minus 38. Uh, you know, all mm. of them deeply unpopular. There was another recent poll that had Horwath as the only one that was popular, but again, only at, like, a plus two. Right, mm-hmm. like very, very marginally. So one shall one opportunity for Horwath is um, polling's been better than it has been the entire cycle. Uh, the fundraising for the ONDP is significantly better than anybody but the PCs. Um, Del Duca is unknown, and the point that he is known is un uh, unlikable. But Horwath was very liked in the last election, mm-hmm. and now she isn't. And if you compare it to say Jagmeet Singh who in most polls is not only just is not only positive but often you know plus 9 plus 10 sometimes plus 15 you know in the positives Horwath is basically floating around the middle point and so um you know there there will be some challenges t- this time that she didn't have last time mm-hmm. but also some opportunities as well yeah, I wonder if it is just a little bit of that fatigue for Ontarians, that all the leaders kind of have this association with a lack of success. Things are you know, worse than it has been for perhaps other provinces when it comes to those key issues that we talked about, because I can't tell you how many times on this show we've said, what can Horvath do? And even though she will say, I think, a lot of the right things, of course, never as as leftist or, or downright socialist as maybe we would like, she's still saying a lot of the more correct things than you ever hear come out of Del Duca's mouth, and it's still maybe not having that impact. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering about one thing, Krista, the, the next story we're talking about, I'm wondering how this will affect this entire Rubik's Cube of leadership and politics here provincially. So you've probably heard this story out in BC, I think it was on Friday, there was word from the top doc there that basically the province is going to manage COVID-19 outbreaks more like the common cold. Uh, basically, they're saying that while contact tracing was a foundational part of the provincial COVID-19 response for the better part of two years, officials have largely abandoned that tool up to two weeks ago, deeming it inefficient in the face of Omicron's rapid spread and shorter incubation period. And now they're even discouraging PCR tests for most of the population unless you are in that very, very high risk healthcare seniors and you know other high risk factors. We have not seen anything official like that here in Ontario. Uh, things are reopening again. I believe by the next show, we'll have a marginal reopening, but there's still severe limitations and there's no word yet on uh, removing any mask mandates or, or anything of that notion. We're back on the track that was set up by Doug Ford you know, before uh, we hit 2022. I'm imagining a world where we get Christine Elliott maybe even up there trying to explain that now COVID-19 will be looked at like the common code cold in Ontario and what kind of impact that would have 
politically, scientifically. I, I don't necessarily know if we're, we want to quibble on that. Like, I, I don't know if this is a choice that was made for NBC for political reasons. I think there is, you know, some scientific uh, basis for this idea because of the, you know, transmission rates and the, the shorter incubation period of Omicron. You know, I, I don't think it's just political avarice that is uh, motivating this choice in BC. So it happened out there. If it happens here, what do you think? And we're looking in the crystal ball once again here, Christo. What do you think the impact could be politically? Because I think this could be a huge win for Doug Ford if this happens and he's able to kind of tamp down the angrier members of his base that are so pissed that there's any lockdowns and that they're they're made to feel bad for, you know, wanting to fight for their freedom and all those ridiculous things. And also kind of appealing more to the moderates that are, are saying, you know, this is just the next scientific stepping stone. Like, I, I feel like this will be a big win. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that... <sighs> Look, we're not scientists yeah. here and, you know, there there are people that are making arguments that, you know, different stages of COVID require different responses and different data that needs to be emphasized and or de-emphasized. But we, as we also know, um, the scientists are not as, you know, uh, a neutral on Mount mm -hmm. Olympus looking down <laughs> upon us mere mortals as they'd like to think they are. Uh, and so they've clearly changed things to appease business and to make governments look good. And so I think it's not unreasonable to think that, yes, even a BC NDP government would like to stop doing a lot of these trackings because it makes it a lot easier to pretend like it's not a big deal anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one key difference is, is that for whatever reason, um, people trust John Horgan more than they trust Doug Ford. He's, yeah. he's he, he, John Horgan remains among the more popular premiers. And I wonder if Doug Ford, who's generally been seen as failing on COVID, where in general, again, whether this is deserved or not, like whether it's deserved or not, um, BC has not seen been seen as big of a failure. Uh, I, I do think it creates a bit of an issue. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and I think Doug Ford, if he does it, I understand what you're saying, that it, it could uh, it would ease up a bit and that could um, protect his right wing flank because there is a, I don't know if the if they'll stick around on Election Day. But, you know, there's all these new, you know, new conservative parties allegedly rising in Ontario mm -hmm. that are threatening to, to challenge Doug Ford, almost like PPC style parties. I think like the true blue party, one of them is I, I don't even know. Uh, you know, I don't give them too much. <laughs> Too much time in that sense, but the um, but the reality is that um, it could also cause a real backlash if there's a sense that Doug Ford is trying to bury the pandemic. Right? There's already been a lot of controversies in certain provinces, including Ontario, where it's like, are are schools accurately informing people about COVID? Are they not reporting cases? Um, some parents feel like. COVID's being hidden from them in that regard, not giving them the ability to protect their children. And I don't know if Doug Ford has the goodwill to basically say, we're going to treat this like the common cold, AKA not really do any more data tracking. I don't know if Ford would get away with it. I mean, if he could, you're right. Um, that, that would, that would be beneficial to him, but he does. I don't think he has the goodwill. Yeah. I don't know if he has the goodwill. What about the fact that Horgan already did it? The fact that it has been announced in BC that maybe kind of tangentially, you know, if the good NDPers did it, you know, at the other coast, it must be okay here. Do you think that, you know, maybe lessens I mean, maybe, some maybe, of the Maybe, and hate? especially if like, 
if it's not seen as causing harm or something, maybe. But um, so far, I mean, he's been taking a beating on every major COVID-related decision. Yeah. Um, I just, I, 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 he, you know, BC's not even done a fantastic job with COVID, and mm-hmm. a lot of the issues we've had in Ontario, they've had too. It's just, you know, uh, BC's government is trusted more to handle the issue. And, and for, it's kind of like, you know, it's the inverse. It's like how, you know, progressive governments are always get hammered on deficits and mm. right wing governments never do uh, even, you know, and it's like, yeah. for whatever reason, maybe BC, just based on the fact that people trust an NDP government to be more fair balanced on uh, healthcare issues, even if they're not in some cases, um, mm. are, are just able to get away with it. I think that Ford would take a lot of heat right now if he was like, we're going to stop. Uh, you know, doing all these things. I think that would be seen as him clearly getting ready. I, another factor is Horgan, Horgan did it um, well before, well outside of an election period. He, you mm, know, got elected. Uh, interesting, got, I yeah. think the current government was elected about a year ago now, I think, wasn't it? Maybe even a little bit more than that. Um, uh, and, and because it's a majority, you're not looking at a BC election, I think until 2025, maybe. Mm-hmm. Let me look, BC election. Yeah, so he, there's no um, risk of yeah. him looking like he's being opportunistic yeah. here. Yeah, you're looking at yeah. so the election was the election was late 2020. So you're looking at another election for not a for not about two and a half, almost three years, mm-hmm. really. Uh, there's a you, there's a long time before the next election. So maybe it's not seen as politically motivated. Uh, Doug Ford going into an election might well have that issue. Man, it it is compelling, and if I, I think about it a, a little further, it almost seems like Ford doesn't really have to say this because we've seen the choices that are being made. You mentioned, you know, the Ontario school systems and how there was a huge issue about whether or not there was accurate testing. The entire narrative has changed from a media standpoint where we talked about it for the last couple uh, weeks on here on the show. It's no longer about the cases. It's about how many people are in the ICU, how many people are dying each day. So a lot of the criticism that was put forth to Ford and the education minister for not having accurate test numbers of outbreaks, not test numbers, uh, outbreak numbers that are in different schools to make sure parents are, are more aware. I think that's kind of the, the damage of that has been lessened because now, you know, we're, we're kind of in a different stage of COVID and, and how we respond to it. So what they did out in BC I think that that is essentially what Ford is already doing, but he has the safety of not having anyone really say that because maybe the the upside to that is, uh, you know, far outweighs the downside because of the arithmetic that we said right here. You know, he's in this election year. He's fucked up so many times already when it comes to this. Like, it's a it's really a big choice. Why say it out loud? You can just have all your policies reflect that. I, I do think that if we are heading into an election and in Ontario, you know, we are doing better and we aren't there isn't a mask mandate, I think Ford, you know, achieves even a bigger victory than he did before. I I think he will be seen as just in that, you know, little two, three week period. If we transition to something that feels even a little more normal, despite the month long lockdowns that we've seen, despite the droves of dead that are caused directly 
by, you know, Ford's decisions, often motivated not even by ignorance, but just out of greed from from different lobbies. You know, I, I think he he gets a big win there. So it's it's still it's still shitty here in Ontario, but it's interesting to see how this is changing. A lot of people really want covid to be just treated like the common cold. I think on both ends of the spectrum, too. I don't think that's uniquely a a right wing consideration when it comes to how Canadians and people around the world want to see COVID. You know, it's it's a great impulse. It's not a great impulse. It's a strong impulse in us to to want this to be something that's a little more normalized. Uh, yeah, I guess we're going to see where that goes. Anything else on COVID before we just bust on to the next one? We're going through topics quick today. I'm very excited. Yeah, no, I think I think we're pretty good. I mean, look, the, the, the polls have been pretty clear that like it's still advantage Ford. I mean, because it's based on the assumption that some polls have... Uh, you know, the uh, what the most recent one had the NDP in a slight lead. You've seen some polls with the Liberals in a slight lead. You've seen some ties. But, you know, fundamentally, it's still on average. The Conservatives are pretty solid in the mid-30s, and the Liberals and the NDP are pretty solid each in the mid-20s. And it's a question of, uh, is there a coalescence of the of the non-Conservative vote? Uh, and how 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 does it coalesce? Like, how much does it coalesce? Like, last time, for instance, the Liberals still pulled in a fairly chunk, a hefty amount of the vote. If we're in a situation in this time where the NDP, uh, again, emerges as the alternative to the Liberals, uh, do you see even more Liberals vote NDP this time? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because, you know, the, 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 the threat of Ford is not simply theoretical, but very real. Uh, and, of course, the, 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 the Liberals... Uh, can, uh, you know, if the NDP falls back to its traditional position, where do liberal voters go? Um, you know, the Lib- the NDP can win a lot more seats at, at 19% than the liberals can. The liberals have a higher mm. ceiling, uh, but a lower floor uh, for votes. So it's still advantage forward in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. As crazy as that is. Um, so I'll have to wait and see. Yeah, we will have to wait and see. And uh, something that you should be waiting and seeing, that's a classic radio transition it ties into this story we're about to talk about <laughs> bell let's talk so if you're not familiar yeah. if you're you're not you know, i don't perhaps, know how you're not familiar yeah. <laughs> unless we have like american listeners or whatnot right? we do it's, have some international listeners yeah, who but, who are yeah. very interested in these phenomenons that are kind of uniquely canadian so uh yeah, yeah why don't we get into it so basically yeah. it's an idea that you know Using social media and connecting with those around you, you use the hashtag in in any of the plethora of social media places that you're talking where you discuss your mental health issues and try to break the stigma for each, you know, message or tweet. Then Bell, this massive media conglomerate uh, here in Canada, will donate and fund and try and reinforce, you know, mental health programs in the country. You know, we've seen this. I think it's been going on for many, many years. It almost yeah, it's, feels it's like it's a fairly long. I don't know how long, but it's a fairly long yeah running pro better part of a decade at least yeah yeah and it's all it we had seen a lot of you know canadian celebrities talking about their mental health issues publicly and it was kind of an opportunity for people to talk about them the biggest irony of course that i think most of our listeners would acknowledge immediately is that when a massive media conglomerate that is uniquely responsible for so many of the mental health crises that all of their workers face, it's a little difficult 
to you know listen to and believe that this conglomerate has you know your best interests at heart that they actually care about the mental health issues in this country or else they would just radically change their business practices like it's it's very simple like if they can't stop their own workers from having an incredible difficult life due to the precarity yeah just for example right precarity in the jobs people who work in bell call centers call centers in general just being such a hellscape of a job right Mm -hmm. and workers getting uh, abused in so many ways at those jobs you know uh, for many years now uh, workers at bell um have launched campaigns saying that you know bell won't talk with us in collective bargaining many of these workers are unionized but they won't meaningfully talk with us about ways to ensure better mental health access at our workplace and really what this is is it's just another example of like the neoliberal farming out yeah of what should be done collectively done through the public done through the healthcare system <laughs> excuse me because it's like oh we can just talk about this but what we really need to do is make massive investments mm-hmm. into mental health infrastructure we don't have that like we don't right like healthcare is um problematic enough in canada but mental health is a particular issue. Yeah. And uh, the idea that we can just bell let's talk our way out of it when we need more mental health professionals, we need better access to those services uh, for everyone, for children, for adults, for seniors, everyone like it's 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 just an example of how, you know, this 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 charity and I'm sure they've done good things and I'm sure that bell let's talk has done some good things and I'm sure that People have benefited from some of the discourse and some of the celebrities that have done things. Again, like I'm not discounting the fact that like good things have have that that, that good things have come out of this, but you know it is not a replacement for you know social investment. Uh, it's not a replacement for workplaces being just made materially better for workers. And in some ways, you might argue that while yes, some good things were done. There's also, you know, it's a distraction from the changes that need to happen. People see Bell Let's Talk and think the work is done mm-hmm. when in reality much more needs to be done. And it's like, oh, you know, all these memes where like, you know, employers are like, oh, what can we do to make this workplace better for people's mental health? And it's like, pay us more, better hours, consistent scheduling, mm-hmm. meaningful workplace consultation, all of those things. And the employer's like, LOL, how about like cookies, right? Like... <laughs> Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like Bell Let's Talk and all of this is just, it's it's a symptom of a broken system. There's a great piece in Passage, I think, uh, which you, we've referenced before. I've, I've, I've uh, written for Passage, you know, three, four times, I would say. And they have a new piece, I believe, on, on Bell Let's Talk. Uh, that is um yeah it's great that, that comes it's, out, yeah hypocrisy aside bell yeah. let's talk campaign is deeply harmful it's it's really a great investigation of like just for what instance they their 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 front picture maybe we could put a link in the description to the piece but the the front like the picture on the on the article is of minister of health christine elliott provincial minister from ontario uh christine elliott minister of health and long-term care being like part of their their campaign and i'm and i'm like Holy shit, you are literally the minister of health of Canada's biggest province and you're doing this. And I get that you're a part of this fine, but it's like if you did your fucking job, then we would not need let's bell. Let's talk. 
It's environmental ministers that are in the protests against what Canada is doing to the environment. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, yeah, it's yeah. that hypocrisy that is yeah, so wonderfully like Canadian. Catherine McKenna, when there was like the signs being like, Catherine, we're protesting you. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, like, you know. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So like, you know, like, look, um, again, they, they, they've done things like this. But, like, you know, there's specific examples, like the PR campaign, but, like, critics of Bell often point, this from the article, often point to allegations that they fired a radio host after she presented mental health leave orders from her doctor and pushed jail staff so hard that one even puked blood as proof of their claims. Uh, as someone who was in radio for three years, I've become well acquainted. And Andy, I'm sure you have these stories well, as well. I got a big one well afterwards. With, I'm going to yeah, wait until with, you do with it. With these sorts of stories from people who have worked at Bell Station, Bell also charges prisoners for cell phone calls Jesus Christ. Provincial jail <laughs> and Bell Media laying off staff right before the holidays has become a sadly predictable phenomenon. And so, again, like all of these things, again, I know that mental health is not purely like I'm not trying to be like a dialectical materialist full and, th and be like uh, everything is the class war. And I know that even if we had equitable workplaces, 100% people would still have mental health issues. But mm -hmm. a lot of this is just clearly driven by capitalism. Like mm -hmm. a lot of mental health issues in Canada are driven by like capitalism, um, specifically firms like Bell, clearly. Um, and like. You can't you can't talk that away yeah. like you can't talk that away. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100 percent. So I'm going to, you know, give a little anecdotal story here. I didn't work directly for Bell. I, I worked for uh, Global and Shaw when I worked in radio in Toronto. So I worked in radio in Toronto for about 10 years uh, all in, which is crazy to think about now. Very, very old, Christo and I, if you're listening. So um, I remember the first few years, and I think this is the case with any sort of media job as a news anchor. It is the most precarious, most part-time, you know, most overnight weekends, 15-hour shifts, not perhaps as physically taxing and absolutely not as physically taxing as many jobs that people have, but the emotional stress that you were under to always make yourself available 24-7, to almost undercut your other part-time employees who are in the same position you were under this big media umbrella so that no one knew how much one person was making no one knew who was going to get you know the the most equitable and and advantageous shifts and if you didn't have that killer instinct and this is not just the case in in one or two different newsrooms but it seemed to be the case overall in in many of the newsrooms i worked in Toronto, if you didn't have that killer instinct, you were seen as less of an option. You were seen as someone who wasn't going to have success if you didn't actively try to undermine and and work against the people that are in the same position as you. They're fighting against this idea of workplace solidarity. And I have another kind of continuation of that story. I, I try to talk about it every Bell Let's Talk, so I'll, I'll talk about it here. You know, I, I personally have suffered from and, and still do a lot of OCD severe tendencies that make talking on the radio sometimes very, very difficult. And I was uh, doing a show in this big primetime hour on AM 640 when I was a news anchor there. This uh, NHL playoffs. And I had a full-out panic attack on air 
And it was a terrifying situation. If you're listening and you've experienced these before, you know what it feels like. I was able to get through it, thankfully, with the help of the other minimum wage employee who is working on the board, got through it, you know, big, difficult workplace thing to get through. I found out within the week or so later that my immediate manager had recorded that screw up and had distributed it to the other part-time employees because at that point, you know, I I wasn't really willing to to fight and get all these different shifts. When I brought it yeah. up with PR, they were upset that I wasn't seen as a team player. And again, this yeah. is anecdotal. It's, you know, there's obviously other factors here, but imagine being in a place like that and then having to say you know, let's support mental health and hearing the hosts across the, the board that make $600,000 a year talking about the importance of that and the bosses like that. Like, I'm definitely not unique in that situation, but it is something that is is not an, an aberration. It's something that I think really was the norm. And I think it's a big reason why the type of work that you and I do, Christo, and, and just podcasts in general have seen this resurgence because we're just not trapped in the same sort of insane capitalist structures. Just it's just not there. So listen, if you're yeah, going I mean, to, look, look, the, the, yeah. the YouTube algorithm can be pretty can be pretty oh, yeah. harsh, but like it's not the same. It's yeah. not the same. So I think if you're listening and, and feeling these same sorts of feelings of just absolute hypocrisy of what Bell is doing and, and other institutions that just fucking beat you down day by day and remind you of that, you know, try to use this opportunity now to to realize that this is accurate. Like you you are you should hate this thing and it's okay if you do. We don't need mental health services from a media conglomerate that forces you into these horrible situations. We need it from our government. This this isn't something that can be solved through awareness. And oftentimes that awareness becomes its own kind of performative pantomime that I think can be really, really challenging. Like if you right now want to get a therapist for a severe issue that you're having in Ontario and you don't want to spend, you know, $200 a session, it is an almost impossible task. It's even yeah. more difficult. And this article in Passage really highlights it. It is objectively more difficult to do that if you're black and brown or indigenous oh, here yeah, in course, Ontario. Of course, 100%. Like it's, it's and the quantified. challenges you're going to deal with are going to be, yeah. you know, even e e system systemic and individual. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It's just, it, it's impossible to do. And yeah. it's why I think if you're listening and you're not in Ontario or not here in Canada, we kind of laugh at some of the notion of what it means to have, you know, real free health care. Because yeah. our, our magic teeth bones are not considered, our <laughs> yeah. eyes aren't, and in many ways, our brains aren't either no. <laughs> when it comes no. to mental health issues. So it's just, it's not a real yeah. system. It's all a joke. And when it comes to Bell Let's Talk, for me at least, that really does seem like kind of them putting the cigarette out on your back a little bit, if you will. Like it, it's almost insult to injury, even if they have perhaps some some noble intentions of using money and awareness to change things. Like I, I really am of the mind where most of these issues are not solved through awareness campaigns. It's money to professionals to make sure that we can get fucking help because it is 
an impossible task. And uh, yeah, every year it just gets more and more depressing. Anything else on this, Christo, before we move on to, uh, you know, universal imperialism that's happening around the globe? No, I think we're good. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about a another war that America could be embarking on. You know, inflation's a big deal in the United States. Things are, are being pushed down economically. Wouldn't you know it? There's more talk about America's need to intervene in a possible conflict between Russia and the Ukraine. You know, this has been brewing, I think many could say, for you know, uh, decades in, in many cases. But this particular conflict is interesting because we have some some pretty clear objectives and and words from from uh, the Canadian government when it comes to foreign policy here. They are fully supporting this idea of a war, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, I would say in general, like the entire Canadian establishment is uh, either pro-war or let's just say charitable. They they have like a t- uncritical backing of like the 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 narrative, which is you know uh, Ukraine unequivocally good, Russia unequivocally bad. We must do whatever we can to pr- protect uh, Ukraine. Um, that's 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 certainly the narrative we're getting, and it's pretty broad. There's not too many voices, you know, being allowed to criticize that. Mm-hmm. And I think the interesting thing that we're, we're seeing now, if you start to search any, you know, just even cursory Google searches about this conflict, the stories of ancillary issues that are coming up are insane. Like there's been reports today that, you know, Canada has been attacked by Russian hackers because of their uh, message support behind a, a you know possible quote unquote invasion from the United States supporting forces in the Ukraine. There's a, another notion that the important arms that were sent to Kurdish freedom fighters will now be redirected to Ukraine in this issue that's happening there. And if you're following it, like it, it's not a real cut and dry thing when it comes to the different military forces that are operating in the Ukraine. Like there is absolute far right rebellions happening there. Like this is, this is not a simple notion and it does seem like Canada is really following suit with the American narrative that this is about Ukrainian freedom and and they're the good guys. And what can Canadians do? Well, we'll at the very least sell arms and give support in in that way. Uh, Christo, you know, we try to bring a, a leftist perspective here. We don't often talk about, you know, foreign policy, uh, especially when it comes to Canadian foreign policy, because there's so many issues at home that I think deserve a, yeah, you know, you know we leftist talk. With, we talked yeah. about Israel-Palestine. Yes, we spent a lot absolutely. of time talking about that, uh, and rightfully so. And you've talked a little bit about Latin America as well. Yeah. But yeah, no, you're right. It's something that we, do, we, we don't focus as much. We mostly focus domestically, yeah. So I think uh, an interesting question for those listening that maybe don't care about this as much or aren't aware... What would you say is a more traditional, you know, Canadian leftist perspective on foreign policy? Because it's a unique challenge that I think is uh, different than I think even leftists in America, the positioning they would take because of our, our, our unique Canadianness. You know, before we get specifically into Ukraine, what would you clarify or classify as, uh, you know, leftist foreign policy here for Canadians? 
uh, largely incoherent, if I'm being honest, <laughs> right? Like, like, yeah, like, again, right? and the like, left is hard. not monolithic, right? The, the left is not monolithic, and, you know, many on the communist left might have a more consistent position, not necessarily always correct, but a more consistent position, which is to say, in general opposition to the, 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 the NATO, you know, Western line, uh, often correct, frankly, 99% mm -hmm. of the time, but every once in a while... You know, that's wrong. But the the NDP, where I have more of an expertise and I, you know, where we sit more ideologically, I mean, there's a tension, right? Because the NDP historically has been critical, skeptical of NATO until the late 80s. Official NDP policy was that the uh, an NDP government would withdraw Canada from NATO. Um, you know, uh, Canada, uh, the NDP in Canada has often been at the forefront of supporting left-wing governments in the, in, in some cases, for example, being a critic of the coup in Chile, being, uh, uh, an early critic of apartheid South Africa. By the end, all, all three major parties, the liberals, conservatives, and the NDP criticized apartheid, but the NDP backed, uh, anti-apartheid movements, uh, in the 1970s when it wasn't necessarily a mainstream position among Western governments. Uh, but on the other hand, the NDP often just adopts the traditional narrative. Uh, mm -hmm. Either they adopt it fully, you know, basically getting on the war train with Libya a few years ago, or they try to do some sort of uh, you know, both sidesism with regard to often what you see in Latin America. Uh, the NDP was good on Bolivia, but I think we've, we were... Uh, terrible on Venezuela. Mm -hmm. uh, Maduro, I don't think, is as uh, black and white good as uh, Evo Morales is. I think there are more challenges and nuances in Venezuela, but by and large, Maduro is the legitimate president and Guaido is a pretender-ass bitch. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, the, 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 the Canadian uh, government basically going full on into that and the NDP try, sort of trying to say, well, maybe we can kind of like find a way to talk about this without talking about it. Uh, I think it isn't ideal. And so with this Ukraine thing, you're seeing by and large the party adopting the NATO Western line, which mm -hmm. is that Ukraine is the good guy. Russia is the bad guy. And we need to do whatever it takes to defend um, Ukraine. Now, the NDP statement has some good things in it, but I ultimately don't think it's it's good enough. And I do think it's a little bit vacillating. Yeah, right? I, got, I got the ones one part of it that I think is perhaps the the most uh, of in conflict with the, the Canadian establishment is this. Like, while we support non-combat military training, we do not support the provision of arms or lethal military gear. For years, experts have warned about the misuse and potential diversion of small arms and light weapons in this region. Canada has a poor history of monitoring small arms proliferation and compliance. Further, the transfer of small arms may serve to escalate sensitivities in this region when maybe we need focus in peace. Uh, so I do think that is generally good. I think that's a position that if a Canadian government made the choice now to not do that, it would be better. You know, it's it's basically that's yeah. as simple as it does get. But there doesn't seem to be any unified major party in Canada, any unified voice saying, you know, this war is bad. We should not be supporting countries that yeah. go to war. Like, it's just no, that I mean, really look, hasn't our, our happened. Our girl boss, deputy prime minister. Uh, Listen, next looks, PM, baby, it's going to be her. Pro I'm saying it probably right. Like, let's be honest. Right. Um, but like, uh, look, I, Christia Freeland is not a Nazi. She's not like she's not. 
but she has repeatedly. Okay, hold on, hold on. You had to say that. When yeah. you have to say that about someone, yeah. it's usually a bad sign, but right? But her family has a deep-rooted uh, Nazi legacy, mm-hmm. uh, deep-rooted, uh, and Christia Freeland has denied that legacy repeatedly. She mm-hmm. is not responsible for the sins of her grandfather, but she is responsible when she tries to cite his leg- legacy positively and ignore the Nazi shit. Yeah. But clearly... Uh, in Canada, especially in Western Canada, there is a large and relatively well-organized Ukrainian-Canadian community. And not to be too stereotypical, that community itself has deep-rooted connections to elements of the Ukrainian diaspora, yeah. many of which were sympathetic to the Nazis and deeply, deeply anti-Semitic. Oh, we right? saw it, we saw it yeah. here when there was have, when there was all this protests about the yeah. SS monuments that were getting yeah. defaced here. There in are Canada. literally Ukrainian Canadian monuments uh, to SS people, mm-hmm. and so in Ukrainian communities, there are monuments and 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 and, and loving photos to anti Semites, Nazi collaborators. Look, it's an issue that affects many communities in Canada, but the Ukrainian community is one of those communities. But so you have that 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 factor, right? Uh, and it's just the the simple reality is, you know, no party is actually taking a stand against this war. The liberals and conservatives are going to back it 100, yeah. 100 percent. If we're being honest, we have to be honest. The polling largely supports the current line that the government is taking. Mm-hmm. Canadians, when polled, it's like 80 percent of Canadians want a hard line on Russia. Yeah. Um, whether that's fair or not, whether that's all manufactured consent, whether you and I are just wrong on this one, I don't know. But the reality is it seems like the polling is in favor of like the um, the, the the mainstream position. But like not enough is being said, and we've talked about this, that we are literally training Nazis. Yeah. Like, look, I, I asked this question on Twitter. Basically, I'm going to paraphrase. I'm not going to read it out. But I asked a question on Twitter because, look, I am not unsympathetic to the fact that, like, it would not be good if Ukraine got conquered by Russia. And I'm not under the idea that Putin is good or even that Putin isn't bad. Like, this is not not the Soviet Union where, like, you know, they're a bastion of, you know, imperfect or not, they're a bastion (laughs) of of, of a different world we can imagine. Russia is is bad. Russia is bad. Russia is a bad country led by bad people. It's it, it's it's a capitalist society. And in many ways, it's even worse than our the one we currently live in. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a good country. It's not a good guy. Um, but this idea that like, you know, there's this like righteous war here is ridiculous. And we are training Nazis mm-hmm. like we've talked about this. The Ottawa citizen is run, not even just like left wing publications. The Ottawa citizen has run pieces. Many other places have run pieces uh, about how we are training them. We are sending resources. We are sending people to train the Azov battalion and things like that, which means that, you know, part Oh, and also not due to negligence either. Like I remember that story was really harrowing because it wasn't as if this was some sort of mistake. Military officials knew. Yeah, they worried that people would find out. Not that they did it, but that people would find out, and they were willing to break rules to make sure people wouldn't find out. It's insane. Yeah, exactly. So they 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 know what they're doing, and so the NDP statement like is like 
like it, it's fucking shameful in some ways, right? It's not enough. Yeah, no, like, even like, the like, the, pra- the phrase right after, like, we we urge Canada to advocate for women from all sides of the conflict who need to yeah. be part of the negotiation. Like, dude, you don't mention at all about the extremism, extremism that's found within the country of Ukraine, what Canada's legacy is there, what they're still actively doing, or whether or not we have any business. Like, there is no question about that either, whether we have any business involving ourselves in the matters of these two states like that's just not even remotely a consideration and this is the fucking mvp this is a piece from the ctv again none of these sources are like anti-imperialist uh you know far-right extreme this is from october of last year but it's uh, utterly relevant far-right extremists in in ukrainian military bragged about canadian training like they literally brag about it and of course they would because canada again I don't know why, but we are seen as a reasonable, moderate, fair-dealing country mm-hmm. right, on the world stage. People have a, <laughs> generally have a good opinion of Canada. And so if Canada is training your Nazis, then your Nazis are going to look better. Because why would Canada train bad people? Canada's yeah. a nice country. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's like we are it's doing... It's really important. It's really, really important. We are really helping important. to whitewash... Like far right, anti-Semitic, anti-Roma people, you know, you know, you know, anti all sorts of, of minorities, anti-LGBTQ people in these countries. And I know Russia has like there Russia's got an anti-Semitic problem too, but like we're not we're not <laughs> we're not training them. them. We're not sending yeah, we're money not, and yeah. guns to help yeah, them kill yeah. other people. That's not happening. Yeah. And so like, look, we haven't done enough. Like the, the here's the like there's a paragraph here. It's one one before. Like it says and and and, and maybe like this was done because the the, the party look the, the caucus is not unified on this like i'm not telling tales at a school yeah, here that's true but look on social media and you'll see that many of the mps that uh, you know have been on this show and that we often you know see as the the better ndp mps have been quite critical of 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 the canadian line on this mm-hmm. but the, the but this is, appears to be the party line because this is the official ndp statement but if you listen here is that we export we, we support the extension of training operation unifier or unifier but all, however we remain concerned by reports of extremism within a small part of the ukrainian military a problem that many militaries including our own have faced our armed forces should not train or support any far-right extremist groups anywhere in the world canada must take every possible action against extremism any canadian training must must assist Ukrainian military in becoming more democratic and accountable with full respect to international law and human rights. And I'm glad that's there. And I almost wonder if not for the pressure, frankly, mm. that they've been getting, they would have even put that in a week ago, right? Because yeah. there's been a lot of people. But here's like at the very minimum, if I can be as charitable as possible to like the NATO line, like the, the right, like yeah. the NATO line. Why are we not fucking demanding the disarmament of these fascist battalions. Why not say to Ukraine, look, we don't want you to fall to Russia. We understand that you're a sovereign state. Russia probably in some ways does suck maybe a little bit more than you do. Um, You know, it's also just geopolitics. Like, we don't want Russia to succeed, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to help you. But because we're ostensibly, we don't like fascism, we're going to need you to pull up your big boy pants and disarm your fascists. You're going to need to go in and disarm the Azov Battalion. And if they won't be disarmed, arrest and or shoot them or whatever you need to do. Destroy your fascists. And if you do that, you'll have our support. Until that happens, you do not have our support. 
-hmm. That should be the Canadian line. If we actually are good faith caring about Ukrainian sovereignty uh, as a right in and uh, as a good in and of itself, but also as like a geopolitical buffer against Russia, then we should be making c demands to not fund groups that like are, are stand against uh, Canadian values, for yeah. instance. And it's like, it's fucking rich to me, right? Because people will be like, oh, we need to take a stand against anti-Semitism, which is why we can't call Palestinians humans. But we'll literally align with goddamn Nazis yeah. in the Ukraine simply because, at least for now, there's a, there's a shared enemy in Russia. Yeah, people right? don't care. Like, really, I think ultimately what you're saying here, even if they agree, like you said, with the NATO party line, that's what we need to do. This is how politics around the world works. Why wouldn't we even just even if you don't believe that, add that disclaimer. It just has to be that the downside of this is that people do not care. The stories that we're talking about, about these alt-right battalions of death that are operating in the Ukraine are from last year. They were, the world was made aware. Uh, Canadians were made aware. And when this possible conflict happened, there was no real mention of that consideration beyond, you know, a couple of uh, one paragraph here that was even followed by, you know, make sure we have women from all sides on the conflict. But there's no real tangible effort to disarm the Nazis that we have armed in a conflict. So, like, I, I think that it's hard to see a way where they have not already won. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, if yeah, there yeah, wasn't yeah. already the, consideration... Ukrainian lo the, 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 the conservative Ukrainian lobby and, like, the NATO line, yeah, they've 100% won this. Like, we've lost this one. Yeah. We've lost this one. Again, no like, look, sometimes I think uh, people, like, the public support is in favor of largely what the government's doing. Um, the, the Almost the entirety of the liberal and conservative parties, I assume, I don't know if there's any dissenting voices, and uh, at least the, the, the NDP leadership uh, not all NDP MPs are are in favor of this. I don't know the green position uh, off the top of my head. There might be some criticism. I know Dimitri Laskaris has been has been publicly critical, um, mm. but you know he's not the, he's not the Green Party leader. Um, yeah, uh, they're going to get the Canadian aid, and they're going to get yeah. Ukraine's going to get what they asked for, uh, and it's going to be happily given because uh, um, that's just the, the the politics of the situation. But it's wrong. Yeah. And again, I, I, I'm not even adverse. You could probably talk to me and, get, and convince me that it's good. You could offer them support. But again, I think, and I, you know, I'm going I'm I'm to tweet this out. At the very least, the NDP should clearly state that Canada should offer zero support to Ukraine until they disarm all fascist yeah. battalions in their why borders. Why not? Like, that should why be the not? bare line. Like, you know, at the very least, right? I, yeah. I, and maybe we should, maybe it, should, it shouldn't even be that unequivocal, right? Like, it, mm -hmm. it should be like no support at all. Because both of these countries, frankly, are kind of bad, and maybe we should just stay out of it. But yeah. like, I'm trying to be, uh, you know, uh, you know, open to the other position. It doesn't even yeah. make sense from a pragmatist mind, too, because why wouldn't they just do that to cover their asses, even if they don't care at all that their weapons are going in the hands of Nazis who are using them to rain death on the very people that we are trying to protect as progressives here in that we are and that we're trying to protect in our own country. It's just it's insane that they wouldn't include it. So I just have to assume that they really don't care and they don't believe that other people will care about it, that Canadians will really care. And I think that is 
the biggest sign of a loss here because we can't even get that. Crystal, we're not even in the realm of like, maybe we shouldn't be involved because, you know, it's, it's death on both sides. Like maybe from a leftist perspective, that shouldn't yeah. even be our positioning here. That's not even on the table. We're asking for table scraps and they're laughing in our faces. When it comes to foreign policy, I always am reticent to to really dive into it because from a Canadian perspective, we fail a lot and there doesn't seem to be an outrage. There's an outrage about COVID. There's even some outrages about the economic insecurities that we're facing here and the realities of, of capitalism destroying us. But the realities of imperialism and our role in it are really not something that I think they're the public is willing to to wrestle with. It's just it's hard, not a right? narrative, right? It's hard. And and this is actually an interesting issue because if I'm being honest, like it's it actually is out of the ordinary that we've gotten the pieces we've gotten from the National Post, the Ottawa Citizen, CTV, actually talking about the fact that we're arming Nazis. Like normally that stuff yeah, would happen. They're and doing it just wouldn't journalism. Get yeah, <laughs> they're, so they're actually so doing it. Yeah, there actually is some reporting on 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 Canada's ties to Nazis in the Ukraine. But like, if we're being if we're being honest, one of the challenges here is that uh, the liberals and conservatives, for most of Canadian history most of the time have shared foreign policy. There have been yeah. differences, you know, you can like the 1911 uh, uh, election was fought on free trade being good or bad. There's been times where the liberals have been more pro-American or the conservatives have been more pro-American, you know, like 1990, there's the NAFTA election. Like, yeah, that's trade, but it's also kind of foreign policy in a sense. But in general, like when it comes to like, Coups comes to support for Israel, things like that, you know, opposing democratic socialism in Latin America. There's been a broad consensus between liberals and conservatives. And generally in Canada, when the liberals and conservatives agree, agree upon something, <laughs> the media takes that as like a given. Yeah. Which is why, like, it's hard sometimes. Like, why doesn't the wealth tax get covered as much, even mm -hmm. though it's got like seventy-five percent support? Well, because institutionally, the liberals and conservatives disagree with the wealth tax. Yeah, and so it's almost like to make something an issue, you need to have a disagreement between the two major parties. But on most foreign policy issues, most of the time, that disagreement doesn't exist, right? Like, it just well. doesn't. It doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I think that really cuts at the heart of it. When there is that institutional understanding, it becomes a narrative that we just can't break. And you've seen these memes and, you know, the shifting of the Overton window of things change when there is only this one established knowledge of what is acceptable and, and what isn't. Naturally, the the supposed left wing flanks become more and more center, more and more yeah. right leaning, even with their responses, because it's just what can be perceived as true. The fact that we don't have a major political party right now in Canada saying we should not be involved in the militarism that's happening in Ukraine between the United States and and Russia is a big issue. Like, I think it's just as big as many of the other issues we talk about well, here. And it's like, it's hard for the NDP, right? And like, look, I'm not defending it because actually I think they're wrong and I think they need to actually pick a fucking side, right? But like a little bit, the NDP right? gets, gets, gets caught on these because, and it's hard because the media is not balanced and fair and honest most of the time in this country. But like the NDP will sometimes try to do this thing where it's like we know objectively that like the Canada's foreign policy is wrong. 
right? And, you know, not all <laughs> the time, not always. Canada's, you know, they sometimes they get things right sometimes, but most yeah. of the time it's wrong. Like, mm-hmm. say, with Latin America, it's often wrong. Like, we recognize terrible regimes. We refuse to recognize democratic socialist regimes. And the NDP is almost scared of, like, not looking, quote-unquote, serious on foreign policy when looking, quote-unquote, serious on foreign policy in this country is to just do whatever the liberals and conservatives would do. And so they they don't want to do that, but then they end up finding themselves in, like, a midpoint, right? Where it's, like, it's not good enough. And so they try to do that with the Ukraine thing. It's not even a midpoint. To be fair, they're, they're 95% on board with mm-hmm. the liberal and conservative position, right, on this. Uh, the framing is is different. This isn't like, you know, some of the Latin American issues where, you know, there was a they, calling what happened in Bolivia a coup, uh, you know, taking a clear differentiated stand. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they need to understand that, like, if you're going to play on the turf of, like, respectability, you're going to have a hard time. I mean, look, Broadbent. Uh, in 88, and look, he made a lot of mistakes in that 88 campaign. We could talk, maybe we'll talk about the history of campaigns. That was the one where the the, fed, the first one, the federal NDP, had a real chance of winning. You know, there was 2011 with Layton, but 1988 was one where it looked like Broadbent could win. And in various ways, he, he sort of moved to the center in, in, in certain ways, uh, still far to the left of like modern NDP in a lot of ways. But um, one of the things he did was... Um, you say, oh yeah, that yeah, leave NATO policy. Actually, you know, we're 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 gonna throw that out. We're ready to govern. We're ready to mm-hmm. govern because you know, if we're gonna govern Canada, we can't actually be different than the Liberals and Conservatives on broad foreign policy. And it's not like that won them the election, right? Like yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So no, yeah. it's it, it's really interesting to see how just in the last you know 50, 60 years, how foreign policy has transitioned to such just outright imperialism for North Americans. Like it is, it is so much in that camp that it's hard to see an alternative of how we can possibly get out of it. Like that's what we talk about a lot here on this show, right? Christo, we look at the, the jams we're stuck in. What can the NDP do? Usually it's not enough that we think would have, be appropriate for the situation in this situation it's it seems like in you know really an impossible task and if we can't convince canadians now that we're training nazis and that's why we shouldn't be sending any aid to military aid to the ukraine at the very very least if we're saying if we can't get a message now if the very popular leader jagmeet singh can't do that now as people are again maybe not as aware even of the the conflicts that that could be happening there or Canada's active support of these fringe groups. If we can't do that now, I don't know when we'll ever have the opportunity to even get just like a foothold ahead. And I, I, I think it's important to note that this isn't just a monolith of NDP and, and leftist ideology, that there are many within the caucus that are spe- not in line directly with this messaging. No, you've Maybe seen criticism what... on social media from MPs. Matthew Green yeah. has talked about it. And I believe like one of Matthew Green things was retweeted by Charlie Angus. I haven't okay. you know, done a direct tally, but you know, you might expect uh, MPs like Nikki Ashton to be critical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Don Davies at least shared a, a, an article that was skeptical of, of the, the, the quote unquote uh, imminency of, uh, uh, Russian invasion. Uh, so this is not a, the, the caucus is not necessarily 100% on board with this line, but look, this is the party line. Like when the party puts out a statement, 
Like, that is meant to represent the statement. It's put out by, in this case, Heather McPherson, who is the, um, uh, I don't know if she actually, she actually didn't put it out, but she shared it on social media, and she's, like, the foreign affairs critic. And so, this is, like, meant to represent the party position on 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 it, and, and it's not a good position. Absolutely. So I, I will absolutely keep watching this, seeing what's going to happen here as this this conflict hopefully doesn't lead to more absolute death just so that both of these powers can, you know, try to assert themselves. Uh, it's going to be interesting. So before we leave today, uh, please head over to patreon.com slash left turn Canada just for $1 a month, you can join our little community, uh, specifically have access to our Discord where we get a lot of different questions uh, from the audience that is listening. One of the questions that we're not going to have time to answer now, so we're actually going to answer it in the Discord, is from Pierre. The Parti Quebecois has a new logo that is pretty interesting. So we're going to look at it and see what we see, a little bit of a hidden eye picture there, see what we see behind it. If you want to join that, head to patreon.com slash Canada. Just a buck for a month or 10 bucks for the whole year. It's not about making money. It's about connecting with uh, with all of you. So uh, until then, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.